Hi there! Welcome to another episode of Adventures in the Creative Industries. My name is Eric Travaglia, your one-man podcast, and today I am with Brian Baglo. I'm so excited about this episode because it's all about business and video games. This is the journey of a company that went to become Rockstar North. This is a journey of a game called Grand Theft Auto. And we start from the very beginning when Brian was part of the original team who made Grand Theft Auto 1. This is the time where there was no Rockstar North, but there was DMA design in Dundee, a small studio that helped propel the video game industry in Scotland. This is the story of how the game got made, but also of how this business evolved and became the massive business that we have today. We touch on all the key points of the story and it's great to hear Brian telling the story of this massive game to be and how just a group of guys in a room managed to make it happen. Buckle up, because this is not just the journey of DMA Design and Brian Baglow, this is the journey of a whole industry. I hope you enjoy this as much as I enjoy making it. Here we go. Brian Baglow. Yes, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Eric. It's lovely to be here. <laughs> like we, we, I love how you have a podcast voice too. You just switch into it, you know? Thank you very much. I right. try. That's, it's uh, why Radio Scotland mind. keep asking me back as the voice of video games. I think because they lack people, they can do it. They, they've got me in their phone book, and <laughs> that's it's it. like whatever <laughs> friends with phony baloney topic they come up with. It's like we're doing a piece about older gamers and why it's actually killing them earlier, and you're like, really? So you've got a conclusion, and then we're going to work backwards. And they're like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Welcome to modern journalism. Oh yeah, what was the last one? It was um, childhood obesity. It's like childhood obesity. There's a new report that says it's like kids today are absolute bags of lard. Uh, we think video games are to blame. Can you come on and talk about it? <laughs> I'm like, yes, but I am going to say that complete horseshit. Yeah. So you found yourself right in one of the pivotal moments, if not the pivotal moment, in the video game industry in Scotland. Uh, yes. Because you were working for DMA Design, which at the time, they were high on the success of Lemmings, and they were working on a number of projects. They were indeed, yes. So you've been in the transition from being like a sort of like a startup, you know, hair quotes, mm -hmm. the way, because at the time, I don't think it was called a startup. God, no, no, no. This is, a, this is like a marketing thing that happens now, but like it, it was a startup becoming, you know, a proper company and then mm -hmm. being acquired for peanuts compared to what happened <laughs> later. Mm. Mm. And then a few years later for a lot more money, which is a different is a different conversation. Actually, I think you might be surprised. Um, yeah, so so basically DMA Design started a, a tiny little studio um, doing games for the Amiga. And yeah. it, those were the days where you could sell your game mm -hmm. through classified ads in the back of a computer games magazine, Zap, Crash, yeah. The One, all these, you know, now seminal titles. And they had done... Um, Menace, they did Blood Money, mm -hmm. and then they really kind of struck it big with Lemmings. Yeah. And that was really one of the very first huge global international blockbusters. You know, it yeah. sold millions. It says, um, I think it says about 40 million copies or 20 million copies, something like loads it, of copies. Yeah. Quite a few, quite yeah. a few. Um, but it was also ported uh, onto other devices. So yeah. it went from the, the Amiga and the ST to the, the um, Spectrum machines onto the consoles. And remember mm -hmm. back then... We didn't have, you know, the Sony's, Microsoft's and, and Nintendo's. No. And the sort of the, the, the giants that we did. We had, the we were still 
in the home computer revolution. Yeah, so we I mean, had Commodore was huge. Yeah, the, the time, FM yeah. towns, the yeah, Sam the Coupe, Spectrum, yeah. the Spectrums, the BBC Model B. Yeah, you know, it was so wild. Exactly. Exactly. It was like the Wild West. So Lemmings was ported to around about 22 different devices. The company made uh, not only a lot of money, but really established a reputation for creativity and originality. And so by the time I joined, they uh, were working on two of the first games for the brand new, as yet unreleased, Nintendo 64. Uh -uh. It was called the Ultra 64. It was called the Ultra 64, (laughs) but you know, okay. Oh, right. If we're That's going me, to out-obscure each other. Oh, <laughs> right. Cool. No, kidding, kidding, kidding. But like, because I love the Ultra 64 name. I was sad when they dropped it. Yeah, yeah. I, but, um, you know, Japan and Ultra, Ultraman, uh, Ultra thing, I Ultra know. Godzilla. Um, so they were working on two games for the Ultra 64 yeah. um, and then a whole variety of games for the Sega Saturn, the PC, and the as the then embryonic um, PlayStation. Yeah. And so, were you not doing some 3DO work as well, or was it not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, there was, there was, there was a little bit of 3DO still, mm, yeah. still going on, but 3DO never really yeah. achieved what it, what it set out to do. Um, yeah. But so, out of all, I was, I was um, part of the design team, and the mm-hmm. design team was a central resource. So we kind of provided um, resources for the all of the teams. So there was yeah. Grand Theft Auto Tanktics, where you played a giant hovering crane that picked up sheep, put them into a giant grinder and made them into tank parts, built tanks and then sent them out in real-time strategy, command and conquer style. Yeah. Because why would you not? Why would you not? Um, space Station Silicon Valley, where you were on a huge space station with robotic animals mm. and you were a little computer chip who could jump into all of them and they all did different things. So, you know, mm. the dog became a a fighter plane, um, you know, the sheep could float because it looked like a cloud. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Body Harvest, which was a Ooh. Grand Theft Auto-esque, free-roaming, time-travelling marine yeah. um, adventure trying to stop giant alien insects from um, taking over the world. Yeah, which brought a lot of drama because Nintendo was supposed to publish it. Oh, yeah. And I was following closely because at the time I had a Nintendo 64. There were so much, so little games on the Nintendo mm-hmm. 64. I mean, like, I bought it in, in 96 when it came out mm-hmm. and I had the American, no, the Japanese version. And there were no games. No, of course There not. were no games. So mm-hmm. any game that was in development, and especially from, you know, yeah. a, a reputable studio at the time. Exactly. There was us we, and there was We were rare. all, like, mm-hmm. following it, and it was, it was all this big drama of, like, it was too violent, Nintendo didn't want to publish it anymore, then Midway came in, and it was all oh, this thing. God. It, How yeah. did you guys leave that from the inside? Um, so it was a second-party title. So second-party means that we were developing it, but it was going to be published by Nintendo themselves, mm-hmm. which was a big deal. Um, huge deal. I mean, like you are in the same league as Rare. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. It was it was a huge, 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 huge deal. Yeah. Um, and they kept pushing us to make it a more and more kind of Metroidy. And I think right. where we were taking it, because it it kind of did fall into the the free roaming sandbox sort of genre that we know and love today. Mm. But back then, it wasn't the um, kind of the level-based structured experience that I think they were more comfortable with. Mm. So they were constantly pushing for us to make it a bit more levelly, a bit more, you know, on rails. Okay. And we kept pushing back. And in the end, they just went, yeah, yeah. sorry, guys, we're not feeling this. <laughs> oh, so, God. But then I got to uh, go out to San Diego and spend a week pitching it to Midway. So, mm-hmm. um, Did you pitch it just to Midway or to other people? Uh, 
we had sent out, you know, essentially let people know that uh, this was this was on the market, right. up for grabs. And uh, Midway was the one that, that sort of came back and went, well, let's, let's see it. So there were other pitches. Well, it got sent to other people, but mm. they were the only ones who went, send somebody out for a week to come and stay in San Diego and show us the game. Did they send you? Yeah. How do you, where do you even start? So like, did you sit down and say, right, so here is the game. <laughs> this so is what you do. <laughs> this is, this is, this is one of the things that I, I discovered through working at DMA Design that I was mm -hmm. actually pretty good at. So they, so originally I had applied to work for them as a programmer. Mm -hmm. um, and I am at best a mediocre programmer. Mm -hmm. uh, they had, on a good day. On a good day with a fair wind and no hangover. Um, I can throw some code together and it might, might work. But they had coding gods. They had people who could take eight pages of what I had hacked together and turn it into one elegant algorithm or function. Yeah. And, you know, I very quickly realized that, that I wasn't a good programmer. Mm -hmm. um, so I went for the job there and crashed and burned. They turned me down. And mm -hmm. so I uh, reapplied about six months later. One of my friends got a job in the audio department right. as a, an audio programmer and sent me emails going, yay, we're in out for pizza and oh my God, check this out. Look, mm -hmm. we've got, here's this secret. Ultra 64. And I was like, right, okay, I have to work there. So I sent them, uh, the next time they were hiring, I sent them a CV that was probably half an inch thick. And mm -hmm. I made the most outrageous claims. What about, did you say? Oh, I had written the entire, you know, uh, X-Files. I discovered Greenland. <laughs> it was like played slide guitar for Bo Diddley. You know, yeah. stuff that was so clearly fictional. Can I hold in a close bracket there? Yeah. So this is your LinkedIn description. This is only one paragraph of the LinkedIn okay. description. And you say executive, leader, creator, designer, ambassador, advocate, speaker, supporter, lecturer, writer, communicator, and expert on the rapidly changing interactive digital and creative industries. And then you go, all delivered with a certain effortless style and brilliance. <laughs> this, is, this is one paragraph of your yeah. LinkedIn description. It goes on like that pretty much. Yeah, of course. Day. Well, so, okay. So, so here's the going, thing. Going, going. I, so, right, I, that, that actually is a, a really nice, solid platform for where I'm going next. So I applied, I sent in this absolute tissue of lies. Um, I also enclosed some uh, Return of the Jedi stickers because they'd been kicking about my bedroom for ages. <laughs> Did you get like but I marked them as a bribe. Um, and so essentially I just, you know, Mm -hmm. expressed my creativity. So did you send that straight to, who was dealing with it? I, I sent it directly I sent it, or? I, well, I didn't know Dave at the time, so okay. I sent it to DMA Design. Because um, this was pre-Google, so you know, yeah. it was an advert in the Courier newspaper. So I sent it in. Checked out. They asked the me paper. in, yeah, I've still got the advert. <laughs> Do you? Oh yeah. Oh, uh, um, they invited me in, uh, I went in, I spoke about games, mm -hmm. um, and I think I scared them. They were like, he's clearly creative, but also a bit mental. If we don't give him a job, he might set fire to the studio. <laughs> um, so they, they, they actually hired me as a writer. Yeah. Um, which I was thrilled and delighted about because writing I could do. And uh, so I started out working on Grand Theft Auto, Tactics, Silicon Valley, doing various things, everything mm. from all of the in-game um, text or dialogue, mission, con you know, creating the, the, the reasons behind missions, mm. what we would now call narrative design. So I started doing that. They sent me down to one of the big trade shows, the European Computer Trade Show, ECTS, which took place at Olympia in oh, London wow. 
in September, October. Did it still do it? Or no, 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 no. It, it fell by the wayside many years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but I went down with uh, the publisher of okay. Grand Theft Auto, which at that point was BMG Interactive. So right. this was the this was the era when all of the big media companies mm-hmm. thought, hey, this computer games thing, we should have one of those. Yeah, yeah. So BMG Interactive had um, a whole roster of games that they were having developed around the world. I went down, we were showing off GTA um, next to a huge big tour bus because BMG Music Company, they had tour buses on tap. They <laughs> did. Two yeah, and it turned out that going down, standing, demonstrating a game and being enthusiastic about it is something that I find really easy mm-hmm. and I really enjoy it. And you do you end up doing the same thing. You know, you eventually find the story. It's storytelling. Mm-hmm. Right. But so you show off certain bits. You f- remember where in the game there are, you know, little um, activities or little actions or little, you know, bits of joy where you mm-hmm. can sort of drop this in and it helps you tell a story. Yeah. It helps you build oh, a narrative. I agree, I agree. And so you do that to journalist after journalist after journalist. Mm. Um, and by the end of day two, I was so hyped and so pumped and it just turned out I, I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had given away business cards. Whilst other people will be absolutely done for it. They'll be oh, yeah. two days in, they'll be like, I'm not doing this ever yeah. again. Yeah. Well, you know, an awful lot of people who get into the games mm-hmm. industry to make games want to sit and make games. Yeah, yeah. They're not necessarily extrovert. I came back to Scotland and it turned out all these journalists got in touch mm-hmm. and asked for things like screenshots or, you know, descriptions of the game or images and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so I just kind of fell into doing the PR so did you do the three at the time? Because at the time it was such an exclusive thing. Industry only. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. At the time, uh, there would be like a VHS floating yeah. about that some friends uh, heard, some friends edit, and you'd have like a copy of a copy of a copy. And I remember like whenever that would appear like two months later, you'd yeah. see all these special games and it would be amazing because... Mm-hmm. There was no really no internet at the time, so the news no. was like the magazines and the magazines exactly. were always the a media. Month the media were all important. Yeah, and, and I remember one especially when when um, they presented the M two. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the M two? They did. presented like Doom and uh-huh. looked amazing, and then it was like this crazy car game, and and then it never never happened. Car Studio, Magellan. yeah, and then 3D Interactive never, yeah, never, yeah, released mm-hmm. that. But was that 3D Interactive were called? Yeah, it was well the 3D O. Yeah. Um, so that that was the new next. It was the, basically the 3DO PlayStation that never came. Uh. Yeah, I, I mean there were there were a whole variety of consoles that kind of fell by the wayside. Mm. You know, the Dreamcast was the one that killed Sega because it was ahead of its time. You're killing me, man. Yeah, you know? I love the Dreamcast. Exactly, and it was the first console to feature internet in, internet connectivity. Not but kidding. I used to play Unreal Tournament with my 56k. Actually, I had an ISDN connection at the time. Oh, check you, man! I could phone and play online. Check me out. Oh, um, but yeah. yeah, but everybody, you know. The common people were still on dial-up, so yeah, yeah. Well, you know. that the ISDN was still dial-up; it was just double line. So you could, you had seven kilobyte download speed, and my mom could phone her friends at the same time. You know, it's like the future. It's like the, it, I mean, mm-hmm. it was mind blowing at the yeah. time. My first computer was a ZX eighty one. Wow! Yeah. I had to save up. I got the computer. Couldn't play anything with it. I had to save up and buy a cassette recorder, so I could then go and actually play games. Amazing! I used to have the Commodore sixty four. And like, I remember we used to buy the, the games and the news agent. Eh? You just go, it's like a cassette, a cassette with like 200 games in it. And it would uh-huh. look terrible. Yes. And then you would buy a game and you would record the version your onto copy. your friend's cassette, your copy. Always. Mm-hmm. They just get, get the, the recorders. Like, yeah, you know, we, were, we were directly responsible for killing the games industry. 
by what? violating intellectual property and copyright. Man, I think like it was... You know, the games industry could have been huge if it wasn't for us. Dude, like the Amiga time, that was the worst one. I remember there was there were like shops in Rome, right? They were like, they had like a downstairs. So you would go into this little basement. The guy had like piles and piles of those yep. desks. And he said, what game you want? Ninja Turtles. Here you go. Mm-hmm. What game you want? Robocop. Here you go. What game you yeah. want? Lemmings. Mm-hmm. Here you go. Oh, yeah. yeah 2,000 yeah. lira. Off you go. You know what I mean? It was like that quick. It was mind-blowing. Oh, Pirates was, was incredible. Carpet sales, markets. Yeah. Everywhere. It's, you could go, and they would have the boxes, so you would be, you know, give the illusion that, that you could buy all of these games. Yeah. You just went up and asked, and they would go under the table and come out and go, there you there's Robocop for you, pal. All right. yeah, I, Five quid. There you go. Back when content was scarce and distribution was difficult. Yeah. It was really difficult distribution. Mm-hmm. It was hard to get. Yeah, it was it physical, physical. Yeah, products. had to go to the Dear bloody shop. God. Yeah, man, you can even go on Amazon. You had to like drag your ass to the shop. I loved that though. Like going to the there were so few and far in between video game mm-hmm. shops. It was like a mystical, magical experience to go, especially because I used to live far away from them. Yeah. When one opened in my little town, it was just I, I, that's where I grew up. It was the uh, same for me with uh, with um, record shops. I, I had a I had a re- I had a problem with vinyl when I was a teenager. Did you? I, oh God! Because you were a teenager in ni- 1955 or something. Yes, so it was immediately <laughs> post-war. Um, I was living in a bombed-out eating potatoes. <laughs> no, 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 not quite, not quite. Yeah, so it was the the 1980s. So the era yeah. where you know we first discovered music. Um, <laughs> the, what do you mean? Oh, because you had cassettes and were cheap, and you can listen to whatever you wanted. No, I was just—it's—it's it's what everybody thinks, you know. When I was growing up, music got really good in the seventies. Punk, uh, you know, breaking my heart. Right, keep going, keep going. <laughs> okay, um, but no, it, it is there, there was something about going to the going to an actual store and mm. browsing through all these physical mm-hmm. products and I looking agree. for new things yeah. and having no idea. You know, I remember um, Avalanche in. in Edinburgh, mm-hmm. um, going and finding an album Rest by... Rest in peace. I know. But I found an album by a band called The Smashing Pumpkins. And taking oh. 10 minutes and going for a walk and coming back and going, no, 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 I'm going to risk it. I'm going to take it. Yeah. Uh, it was um, Gish, their first album. Wow. And it was just like Man, revelation. Yeah. That is true. Like, same with video games. I used to go in and like you, all you had, or unless you had read a review on a magazine by sheer luck, mm-hmm. you would go in, look at the, the, look at the, the art box... Uh, look at the, the box, look at the art, turn around, read the description, look at the three screenshots. And I would spend uh-huh. hours in the shop reading all of it and like, oh, looking yeah. and then like I'll put two t- together and I was like, hmm, mm-hmm. which one should I buy, left or well, right? Well, that's and it. You know, its content was scarce. Yeah. So you couldn't just throw your money away. You, no. you know, it was, And so you bought an album, you listened to the album. Absolutely. And if it sucked, you would maybe go and try and sell it secondhand. But with video games, it had a... that in. It actually created an entirely different mindset for mm. developers, yeah. Because for people making video games, when physical products was a thing, where the retail model was the only one in town, yeah, you had to pay money before you could play a game. Yeah, yeah. Then, if you got it home and you thought the game sucked, we as the developer didn't have to care. <laughs> it's like we've got your mm-hmm. money. You got away. That's why Doom became such a success. Exactly. Because the guy the software. They were mm-hmm. like, well, let's just give it away for free. If well, that was it. Rest Shareware yeah. was your opportunity to actually try things. Yeah. But there was a reason back in sort of the, the late 90s, early 2000s, official PlayStation magazine was the, you know, outside the, the TV listings mags, mm-hmm. was the single biggest selling magazine in the whole of the UK. Because it was the only way you could get your hand on games. Yeah, the demos. The demos, the demos were just uh, phenomenal. <coughs> the and demo CD was a big, huge shift in the industry, I think. Absolutely. 
And then it's like, as soon as we got to sort of ubiquitous broadband, mm. you know, the PlayStation mags are, are languishing now because you get your, your content, you get your demos, yeah. and more and more of the content out there is free. So it's, a, it's mm. an entire mindset shift, not yeah. just for players, but for the industry as well. So you were talking about going to Midway and practically pitching Body Harvest after all the drama with Nintendo. Yeah. And how was your relationship with Nintendo at the time then? Were they all right, or were you guys like kind of no, bitter mean, about it, or not really? Um, there were a lot. There was a lot going on uh, with the company at the time because mm. we were in the middle of being acquired by a developer and publisher in Sheffield called Gremlin, which were huge at the time, right? Because they had loads of games. Oh, like they were they were like one of the leading British mm. publishers. It's, they had the whole Actua sports series. Yes. So Actua oh. tennis, Actua football. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Actua darts. Um, so they would, and they had uh, they were doing an awful lot of their own original um, content. Yeah. As well, so they they had uh, a really neglected classic called um, what was it? Realms of the Haunting, which was almost like a interactive movie. Mm-hmm. You know, because CD-ROMs had just come out and it was a thing. Um, Realm of the Haunting. Realms of the Haunting. Realms it of was, the Haunting. It was like um, a full 3D, mm. you know, f- FPS, but with a supernatural um, twist. Have no value of it. No, I, I don't think it really set the world on fire. Mm. Um, I don't even know if you can track it. If you can track it down. Maybe Good Old Games has a copy. Anyway, Gremlin were in the middle of acquiring DMA Design. Um, because despite the fact that, uh, you know, uh, GTA was in production, it was before it had come out, mm-hmm. before it achieved global success. Uh, we weren't doing the deal with um, Nintendo. Nintendo anymore. So Midway picked up the publishing rights, but only in the US. Um, in oh, the UK right. and Europe, it was Gremlin that published Body Harvest. Okay. And uh, we were still working on Tanktics and another game, Wild Metal Country. So we had this weird situation where... Uh, BMG Interactive were publishing some of the games that DMA were doing and mm-hmm. Gremlin were doing some of the other games. And then at that point as well, BMG decided that this whole video games thing wasn't really for them. So they started to look at, you know, potentially getting rid of their games division, um, which in the end they did. They sold it to a, a US publisher called Take Two. Imagine being BMG now, looking back and thinking, fuck. Yeah, yeah. They probably there is somebody <laughs> at BMG who's going, well, the person who turned down J.K. Rowling, whatever the publisher was that yeah. said no to Harry Potter, is probably feeling almost as bad as I am. <laughs> and to be fair, you know, BMG were trying to kill Grand Theft Auto pretty much throughout the last two years. So did it have effect on the fact that it was delayed for a year? And No, that was, that was more or less a, a, a technical decision. Um, right. We discovered that the uh, we could actually change it up a notch so we, we could actually put 24-bit graphics in and it made it look ultra sexy and ultra zingy and given the fact that the original Tomb Raider had just come out on the on the PlayStation um, and we looked at that in full 3D and went we're dead <laughs> to be nobody's honest nobody's <laughs> going to see if people are playing this and we've got this obscure little top-down driving game yeah yeah I, I oh shit and one of the biggest issues that we had with with grand theft auto was that we didn't have an end point because if you're making a game let's say you're making fifa 
right? You know how physics works. You know what the rules are. Mm -hmm. You know where football happens. You know what the players yeah. look like. So once you've brought all of those things together and you can actually play a game of football, you go, cool, we're done. And Same then you just that. iterate on that. Whereas Grand Theft Auto, we were like, is this fun? Is this good? Is this... Because when I joined, um, you were still playing the cop. You know, so your, your goal oh, was to was like, oh, the clean up the chase city. Was called something like Race and chase. Race and chase. Yeah. Um, and it just wasn't fun. And it was eight or 12 or eight, maybe even 18 months after I joined the company that mm -hmm. the, the, the decision was made after numerous fist fights and design meetings that we should try letting you play the bad guy. A lot of the, a lot of the, you know, the most entertaining elements were zooming around the city. Yeah. And, uh, you know, splattering people in the park and running over the entire line of Harry Christians. If you were a policeman, you had to be penalised at some point. Yeah, yeah, So yeah, it yeah, yeah. made you drive like a driving instructor. <laughs> so I've got to stop at the junctions, <laughs> wait for the lights, you know, game, stay, yeah, yeah. yeah, stay off the pavements. Oh, no skidding through the park. Um, and it just, you know, it made no logical sense because mm -hmm. you had to be penalised and therefore yeah. people were going, oh, this is great. Oh, wait, hang on. Um and so the flip kind of, let's try it. And it was just a, a sort of a mindset change mm -hmm. more than anything else. And it was just like, ah. Now is fun. That makes way more sense. Because um, <laughs> now you can go on the payment. Now you can yeah. just. Now, and now like, you, you know, it wasn't unheard of because Carmageddon was out already at the mm -hmm. time, right? So like, and it was, I remember it was such a big deal. So violent, yada, yada, yada. Because Carmageddon was literally you in a car. Yeah, killing people. people. Mm -hmm. It was all about. How many people can you yeah, run over? It was Death Race 2000. It was. Because we didn't have anything other than, do we think this thing is fun? Yeah. Um, and because there was nothing else like it on the market, mm -hmm. it was an absolute shot in the dark. Have you and have you already had flipped from cop to criminal mm -hmm. at the time? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and all the elements, you know, we, we kind of knew roughly what stuff we liked and what, what mm -hmm. parts we enjoyed. Um, but, you know, right up until quite late in the day, the car handling sucked. Mm. It took getting a, a different programmer to come in and basically rewrite the entire car handling. Oh, God. Before, the you whole know, game, pretty much. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and so all the way through, for m months and months and months, um, BMG Interactive were trying to kill the game. They, they were like, no, no, we're just not seeing it. We're not. Mm. It's not coming together. Um, and obviously they had paid for it. Um, and it was just really, yeah, probably the last six months where it started to coalesce and you could actually go, this is quite cool. This is quite good. Yeah. And when we took it out and demoed it, you know, I was yeah, yeah. going out and showing it to the, the press who were yeah. all powerful at the time, you know. Um, and in fact, uh, we had a, a visit from two guys from PC Zone who came up for PC a couple of days. Zone. PC Zone, who were the anarchic bad boys of the British uh, gaming press. Um, but Paul Mallinson and Charlie Brooker. So before he went on to, you know, marry a BBC no, yeah. uh, Blue Peter presenter and become, you know, terribly famous and rich. Mm. If you're listening to this, Charlie, where's my yacht, you bastard? Is that that Charlie Brooker? Yeah. No way. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, he started off as a, as a journalist on PC Zone. That's amazing. Mm. An old he used to do all the cartoons way. in the back. <laughs> Does he? Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Have you have you been have you kept it cut it? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm popping around for tea and Yeah, sandwiches. every once in a while, uh, just talk about GTA. Me right? and Connie. It's like, all right, Connie. No. Right, okay. So they came over, they had a look at the game. What was the reaction at the time? Um Delight. Delight it. Okay. Yeah. 
Um, because it, it, if you just saw screenshots, it mm-hmm. didn't necessarily look the best and it looked really obscure. Um, and I, as I say, I, I was the writer. I fell into doing the PR. So I ended up writing all the background stuff, all the, you know, what, yeah. we, would, what we would call a press kit to send out to the, the journalists. Um, and I just wrote what I thought made sense, you know. So um, the whole living, breathing city thing I th- was was me, and mm-hmm. um, the 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 notion that it was go anywhere, do anything, what we now call sandbox, mm-hmm. and it was that freedom, and it was all of the the little touches. So you drove down an alley, and there was boxes, and you could mm-hmm. smash through the boxes because that's what you'd seen in video games. Uh, it, that was what you'd seen in movies. I do beg yeah. your pardon. And then a lot of the missions were just basically cribbed straight from our favourite crime capers and our favourite crime movies because we had pagers. So you didn't. There was no speech. No, no. As such, in the game, um, pager messages, 120 characters. So when Twitter came out, I was like, this seems eerily reminiscent. <laughs> but of course, you could answer the phones in any order. The missions could come in any order. So yeah. creating narrative arcs and creating sort of overall progress yeah. was really hard. So there and were all of these new at the time. Yeah, so it was all these little beats yeah. um, and little sort of points of reference. You know, there was Easter eggs all over, so you drove over a certain point in the map and it would trigger a pager message. Um, so there was ones which was, thanks for last night. You were amazing. Love you. Lara. And, you know, just... Yeah. Th- just just little references. Doing at the time, yeah. Exactly. Um, and I think that's why 1, 2 are, are so fondly remembered. Um, not to take anything away from 3, but they were they were really tongue-in-cheek they were really black humored you know they were really sort of based around the the fun and cool things you know it's yeah. the very um, british neighborhoods the writing was oh very yeah british. oh yeah 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 it's neighborhoods in, in liberty city were named after neighborhoods in dundee you know yeah, oh yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. so it was it was very tongue-in-cheek but but it also it was incredibly creative so we didn't have money to go and license music. Mm-hmm. So we had our in-house audio team who wrote and recorded wrote and recorded all the songs and used local artists from around Dundee. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the original soundtrack was phenomenal. You know, I, I wrote the lyrics for the country and western track, the ballad <laughs> of Chapped Lips Calhoun, the heavy metal track, Four Letter Love. <laughs> um, but then we created um, fake bands and fake albums mm-hmm. and fake album covers at one point. And just pretended that we had found all these up and coming bands. And I everything. love all that stuff. And like I, all I, the, I, that level of detail. And yes. I taught. I basically again lied through my teeth to the press and told them, you know, showed them a picture of the the, the, the guys from the audio team looking moodily up in a black and white photo. Mm-hmm. I said, uh, I can't remember which band it was, but they've just um, they're playing tonight at Unit Seventeen <laughs> in Dundee because it sounded clubby. But Unit Seventeen was basically the part of the industrial park where they worked. Yeah, and so just led people to believe that you know we were far more cutting edge than we were and it's amazing that all of this because lemmings was a success so you could hire people to do the music and you could hire people to do the programming and stuff like that it it, it did it created the platform that allowed the company to grow yeah in the way that it did i like Um, it's amazing like lemmings itself has kind of disappeared now in the last decade you know well it went through because so psygnosis ended up with the Intellectual property, Psygnosis, mm. Psygnosis were acquired by Sony, Computer Entertainment Europe. So, at Sony Psygnosis, they made the original Wipeout as yes. well. Yes, yeah. Which was amazing at the time. Absolutely, absolutely. Also, full 3D. Also, oh. we saw that on the PlayStation and went, oh, 
cock. Um, <laughs> but I, I was more excited about Wipeout, and I, I had like the big box for PC than I was about Tomb Raider. Because mm-hmm. Wipeout yeah. felt like so good, fast and s- yeah. simple, but yet like complicated. And they, they added it, they sort of like shoulder button to like mm-hmm. drift left or right. And it was good. It was good. Oh, it's fantastic. It's I, I still love Wipeout, you know. Mm. Not a huge fan of racing games unless there are gravity torpedoes. And, I agree. Know, unless I can blow the crap out of something then. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. the, the, the whole Gran Turismo just leaves me cold. I played a lot of Gran Turismo 2, but... No, not really. After a while, I just get bored. I know you're doing trying to, to to improve your your timings. That's it. A lot of people like racing games. And yeah, I'm yeah, not yeah, saying yeah, they're absolutely. wrong. I mean, it's a Festo Corsa is, is a massive success, and he's pretty much like driving almost. Absolutely, but you know, you look at um, Dirt, you look at Forza, you look mm-hmm. at all of there. Are, there's huge success there, and some of the franchises are enormous. The last driving game I really really enjoyed um, was um, Burnout Paradise. Same mm. love burnout. I, they just refined the whole burnout. Mm-hmm. Burnout prize was like the end all be all of crash and burn. Yeah, and sort of like driving games. <laughs> Let's go and make some chaos. So good. Like the camera sh- choices are really good. It sucks that <coughs> you have to sign up to Origin if you want to play it. Mm-hmm. It's a mind, it's a nightmare. I just screw that. Yeah. Um. So GTA One, the press PC zone. They liked it. Yep. And then what happened after? Hmm. So the press picked up on it. Um, we had been doing everything in-house. Mm-hmm. It got closer to launch and BMG made the decision that they were going to hire Max Clifford the as a publicist, mm-hmm. as a PR, to kind of hype the um, the violence and irresponsible side of things. Wow. You steal cars, run over cops, do all of this. So I was the PR guy mm-hmm. by default. Um just, that's Just because there was guy. nobody else, <laughs> yeah. there was nobody else in the company who could write a press release or who was willing to pick up the phone and go, "Hello, is that pieces of right? Who do I talk to?" Um, so I was making it up as I went along. Yeah, and that's also to say that at the time, CEOs weren't such like you know rock star and companies. So like no. you know, it's not like David Jones go out and talk about his games. No. I mean, that was like. Peter Molino, that's the one. He's, he was the one that kind of broke the mold in that respect, because he loved being in the and on stage in the and limelight. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, Dave, I, I was in the office, the office opposite his, mm-hmm. um, in the the DMA offices, and I would sort of get a call from a journalist. Mm-hmm. I would put the journalist on hold, phone Dave. Right, I've got such and such on the line. You're going to talk to him. You've got time. Yeah. Okay. Are you really going to talk to them? Okay. <laughs> right. Are you sure. And then so I would go back to the journalist and all I'd hear is a click and it was his office door and he would have legged it down the corridor. Yeah. Um, he just really, really didn't like talking to journalists. Talking to journalists. Mm. He didn't like, it, it's quite a Scottish thing, which is, yeah, yeah. you know, and it's still true to this day, so downplaying, you know, what it is you're working on. Um, and as the PR guy, it made my life hell. Because if you yeah. can't get excited about your own game, you're not going to be able to enthuse anyone else. Yeah. I mean, like, it, to, to, up to this day, it's still rock and rolling because he, mm-hmm. he, he was working with the guys at Cloud Gin, right? And then they got bought off by, by uh, Epic. Epic. Mm-hmm. And now we have an Epic office in, in Edinburgh. Yeah. And, like, you know, the guy, Maurizio, that runs it, is a lovely mm-hmm. guy and they're really doing well. I mean, I'm so happy for them. Yeah. A, a really little bit happy. of Fortnite comes to Scotland. so It's incredible. Now we have the two biggest game in the industry mm-hmm. in Edinburgh. Yeah. Get that, London. Yeah, don't just don't start me. But it's <laughs> if only the rest of the industry was doing quite so well. Yeah, that's something I really want to touch on. Okay, so the last thing 
about DMA Rockstar yeah. North is like is the the people mm-hmm. clearly like David Jones he, he was the guy that started it together with the team of like mm-hmm. three or four people right at the beginning yeah. mm-hmm. and then they all you, you guys were making games and they hired a bunch of people yep. and yourself mm-hmm. included but it came the time where you guys got acquired by Gremlins Interactive right yeah. mm-hmm. and then you you kind of like coasted with Gremlins for a while until Gremlin were themselves acquired yes by Infogram and that must have been quite a big deal for the oh, office. It was, it was it was crazy. And now by this point, I had jumped ship, so I had left to go and work at Rockstar. So, so you were working with the, with Rockstar in New San York. Diego, in New York, in New York. Um, so the way it worked was, uh, GT One came out, mm-hmm. and it just kept selling and selling and selling. Mm-hmm. You know, normally you've got a quite a big spike. You've got a few weeks, so you hype the hell out of a game to try yeah. and get as many units sold as you can and then the drop-off is really severe because mm-hmm. 12 weeks after the game comes out three months after the game comes out that's it in a lot of cases you just couldn't find it in the the stores anymore mm-hmm. but gta just kept going you know for well over a year the sales numbers just kept going up and it was a lot of it was down to word of mouth and mm-hmm. uh, we were doing an awful lot of um work in-house because we were making it up yeah. um, and because i wouldn't let it go mm-hmm. Right, so what should have happened is that the deve- the developer kind of does the work, the publisher does all the marketing, mm. um, distribution, manufacturing, all of that kind of stuff. But they do all the marketing, advertising, and PR. Um, I didn't know that. So I just was like, no, mine. So everything about that game was D- it was DMA design, DMA mm. design, DMA design. And I just kept hammering it and hammering it. And mm. any time the publisher, BMG, phoned a journalist, I'd been there first. Yeah, okay. You know, um, and the guy who who uh, was their PR manager, uh, Gavin White, who I ended up working with at, mm-hmm. at Take Two, um, was a lovely guy and, you know, so laid back. And he was, yeah, yeah, no, it's fine. Um, so we kept control and we were doing an awful lot with the very early internet, you know, so there were guys out there who were mm. starting their own websites, fan sites. Yeah, yeah. Um, who wanted to do interviews, and I just got the whole team together, and we would do online chats. It's amazing at the time. Via, you know, uh, AOL Instant Messenger. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, AIM. ICQ. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 it's, we did uh-huh. a couple on ICQ. Um, and then, weirdly, and this is something that I I, I don't think anybody realises, um, at that point, the tools that the team had used to build the game were mm-hmm. atrocious. They were not good, right? And right. just testing the whole thing, the, the level designers, um, Paul and Billy and Steve, did a city a piece, and you had to basically lay out individual tiles. Yeah. And the, the 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 ways in which you could actually look at the map, it wasn't full 3D, so you could spin it around and go, oh, bloody yeah. hell, I missed a wall. Uh-huh. Um, it was really, really complex. And it was it's amazing how at the time... Everybody had their own engine, so ID Software yeah. had their own thing, mm-hmm. and then it was like to get the, the guys Blizzard they had their own thing. Oh yeah, Diablo, so fucking crazy. We and had then, we had built our own technology. Yeah. So it was Mike Daly in the, the in the uh, design um, team um, who had built the original engine because yeah. he had seen a game called Clockwork Night and went, oh, oh yeah, I think I can do that, and did it, and and because Dave being Dave, huge sort of racing car fan, just went put cars in it, make them buildings, mm. um, but. Several of the people who were starting their own websites had got in touch to go, can you send us stuff? 
from the game. So you know, God, it was sent them so early days. Sent them the the you know the car models. Sent mm-hmm. them the sort of the building textures. Did all of this, and there were people out there who started building their own engines mm-hmm. to actually modify Grand Theft Auto. It's insane. That so was a real modding community. It was. Area. It was. <laughs> and bearing in mind, you know, it it did exist at that time. There mm-hmm. were um, games out there that, that gave you the engine. Um, or allowed you to sort of make your own levels. Like Doom, but, Doom yeah, allowed you to make your yeah. own levels. So, but GTA didn't. And so it mm. was. It really created its own modding community. Mm-hmm. And user-generated content and modding is such a big, big part, you know, I think under-recognised part of the games industry. But this was 1997, 98. So early days. You know, it's it's insane. Were you guys blown it. away by seeing this, people making their yeah. own custom levels? How the hell are they doing this? Oh, absolutely. And, <laughs> and when we actually looked at some of the tools that they were using, they were like, Those are better now. <laughs> yeah, these people have really put some thought into it. Um, so it was fantastic. So the game kept on selling and selling and selling. Yeah. Um, I got the opportunity to go and work at Rockstar because they had signed that they had said immediately, um, or BMG had sold yeah. to Take Two. Sam Hauser had moved to Take Two and pitched them this idea for uh, a label for gaming which focused on mature content called Rockstar. Take Two at that point had done quite a lot of interactive movies under mm-hmm. Killing Moon, and they were an established but not particularly innovative or edgy company. So it was a guy called Ryan Brandt who. Um, started it who actually died on, uh, last oh, wow. year um, so he he started the company came from quite a, a wealthy family um, and so when they bought all of the, the games from mm-hmm. uh, uh, BMG Interactive part of that whole package was Grand Theft Auto right. right and so along with that they got some of the staff because they you know it was still it was an active an ongoing concern Um. Sam Hauser was there and he pitched Ryan the idea of this mature games publishing label. I want you to call it Rockstar Games. Okay, okay. And that's so, how Rockstar yeah. started. And so I, I got headhunted. Rockstar as, New York. Yeah. So it was headquartered in New York. Mm-hmm. Right? It was a publisher. Um, and it was going to focus entirely on games for a, an adult audience, a mature audience. And um, you were one of the most skilled, skilled PR guys out there at the time. No, I was making this shit up as I went along. I know, but in terms of like violent games, I mean, GTA oh. came out, it was doing very well, so mm-hmm. you were like the guy to hire at the time. Yeah, yeah, so so I got um, asked to join the team as their first global PR manager. Wow. Which is quite a good job title to have. Mm-hmm. Uh, I even had a business card that says, Je suis on Rockstar. What happened then? Because that was huge, right? You joining Rockstar must have been like... Oh, Joined shit. Rockstar. Um, was it easy to leave DMA after? No, 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 no. Um, joined <coughs> joined Rockstar, moved out to New York, lived in New York for a few months, but I was actually officially going to be part of Take Two in Europe. Um, so went out, lived in New York for a few months. Um, because of the way that the whole pay and everything, they managed not to pay me for most of the time I was out there. Mm. Um, you know, it was going to be it was going to be the European lot, and I had to go and sign things, and mm-hmm. you know, the fax machine wasn't installed. I don't know. That's it was one of those weird things that uh, nowadays I would have been like, "Yes, yeah, sorry, guys, I'm out of here." Yeah, uh, not paying me, but I was in New York. I was in my twenties. I was mm-hmm. just like living the dream, living the dream on yeah. money that my parents and grandparents were <laughs> wiring to me on a weekly basis. Wow, I so was living. Pay I was, it all? No. Wow. Yeah, I, so I got to know the uh, street corner knish vendor really well. And all the places that did falafel for a buck. 
Wow. Um, so anyway, I was still in New York, so it was great. Then they moved me to the European headquarters in Windsor. So I went from the city that never sleeps to basically to Trumpton. You know, where they closed the they closed the road outside the office twice a day to march the guards up to the top of the hill, and then to march them down again. Um, and then uh, alongside Grand Theft Auto Two or GTA Two, as it was being rebranded, there was a a whole host of other um, titles that came out yeah. through Take Two and through Rockstar. Um, some were good, some were bad. Anything big no. at the time? Um, Hidden and Dangerous. Yeah, was probably the one which was the Still. first sort of squad-based World War Two, mm-hmm. um, not shooter, but kind of action adventure. Mm. Um, there was one called Flying Heroes, which was very surreal. So you played knights, dragons, flying teapots, all of this, and you flew around and right. uh, and uh, basically killed other people. Um, we had all of the gathering of developers games for distribution in, in Europe mm-hmm. so I don't know if you remember God Games so they did Kiss Psycho Circus and Fly which was the competitor to uh, Flight School so they, they were do, uh, the indie version of Rockstar so they were a real sort of ragtag bunch of rebels playing by their own rules who wanted to shake up the whole publishing system they were published system. by Take Two in, by Take Two yeah. in Europe so you, you, you got a chance to say okay because it was a mature label at the mm-hmm. time, video gaming wasn't that mature in terms of like, we had loads of, like Nintendo was one of the biggest one, right? So mm-hmm. all the games were mostly like kids game. I mean, Sega came around, came along and, and shook that in the first place. But I think that window when you're talking about, that was the end of the 90s, early 2000, End right? of the 90s. But, yeah. but, but because there were more and more people who had grown up with gaming at that point, you know, I had the Atari VCS when yeah. I was about eight years old. A lot of people were growing up. So the the number of um, players, or players were aging, mm. right? That's the reality. And it's still true to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have an issue very specifically here in the UK, but it is a little more widespread. We look at uh, games, mainstream press yeah. um, people consumers look at games and go oh they're toys and therefore they're for kids which is why the whole um, issue around about mature content still rumbles on here in the UK because they, they assume that games are for kids now if you look at the market mm. well over 80% of the games that come out are, are perfectly suitable for almost any audience Anyone, yeah. but Games have a right to have mature content in exactly the same way as books and comics and rap music and music of all kinds. And there are mm. con- there are um, controls in place. We've got the BBFC, we've got the certification, we've got the PEGI ratings. Mm-hmm. Right? You can't say, well, games are not allowed to have mature content because kids will get a hold of them. Mm-hmm. You know, that's true of vodka, cigarettes, alcohol, porn, all kinds anything. of porn. That's why they want to block porn as well. Like they, they have this kind of view of oh, we make it unaccessible, so people won't access it. It's like, if kids want to buy GTA, I'm afraid they'll buy it. But but it comes down to the parents. You know, I have have been in games shops um, where a kid has come up, been turned away, the parent comes up, puts the same game down the counter and just going, sell them the game. You're like, like, "Mm, he's nine! You know, and and you look back on the original GTA now, and it was top-down, it was cartoony, it was kind of Pac-Man-esque. It's... The, the shock and the outrage was implied. There was no, you know, nothing yeah. graphic. You had the little blood trails if you if you zoomed over a, a row of Harry Krishnas, but eh. yeah. um, it's very hard to be sued by an ideology. Uh, 
you say that. <laughs> well, this is true. It's like the communism, mm, mm-hmm. possibly. Uh, but um, the uh, the issue has always been with with parents. You know, I, I've met so many people over the years who say, "Oh my God, yeah, I played the original Grand Theft Auto," um, and look back on it fondly. I've never met anybody who went, "Oh God, GTA ruined my life." I started no. stealing cars, smoking crack, <laughs> you know. Oh, of course. But like, you know, when a nine-year-old wanted to buy GTA 3 for PlayStation 2 and that introduced you having sex with prostitutes, then kill them and get the money back. It came out with an 18 certificate for a reason. What happened next? Um, well, it was more of the same. They were, they were uh, publishing games from a wide range of mm-hmm. developers all over the world yeah. on a whole variety of genres. Um, the guys in Dundee, DMA, mm-hmm. were still... Were, getting on with Grand Theft Auto 2. Yeah. Now, GTA 2 introduced gangs. So you yeah. had militant Hare Krishnas with automatic weapons. You had they the could Yakuza. finally defend themselves. Exactly. Well, that that was the whole thing. Yeah. Um, you had the, the uh, Yakuza, you had Rednecks. So there were different mm. factions. And as you um, took on jobs for different gangs, then your respect changed in, in the relationship between them so some of them would hate you some of them would come after you but so introduced another level to the game um didn't really do as well as the original um a lot of reasons for that i think one of them was it was kind of set five minutes into the future the nice thing about the original was that you you recognized a lot of the cars you know the jugular was a jaguar and the pickup Mm -hmm. truck and the the slightly futuristic thing i mean the graphics were phenomenally better than the original um but i think it was just it didn't quite have the same appeal Mm -hmm. you know and it didn't have the same kind of soundtrack uh they did a deal with Moving Shadow, the drum and bass label, and so they had Flytronics and a whole, you know, a whole bunch of different artists in there, um, and so the soundtrack wasn't as as varied as you know the original. Um, it did it did okay, you know, it, it did okay, um, but at that point, Gremlin were starting to find it difficult. The, the market was changing, mm-hmm. their games were getting more expensive to produce, and they weren't getting the same kind of, you know, sales as they had, yeah. or the same kind of income as they had. Um, so while I was at... Uh, well, I was at Take Two, Gremlin were acquired by Infogram. Mm. And it was at the ECTS trade show, the one I mentioned earlier, yeah. it was about years, years down yeah, the line. Yeah. Um, the guy who was running Infogram at the time came to the, the stand to talk to Kelly Sumner, who was the head of Take-Two in Europe. Um, or it could have been Sam Hauser, I forget. But anyway, they did a deal, and so uh, Take-Two acquired, you know, um, DMA yeah. Design right. and turned it into... So Infogram yeah. and, and, and Take-Two mm-hmm. decided to... That's what Take-Two well, so the DMA team, from the team that was in yeah. uh, DMA yeah, yeah, producing yeah. Uh, Grand Theft Auto... Were, yeah. were okay, they were being paid for by uh, by Take Two, yeah, right. So, uh, Gremlin didn't own the intellectual property for Grand Theft Auto. Oh, did they not? No, what they, they had just owned the, 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 the rights, they just to... they employed the development team that made it, so they were paying the salaries and then charging. Wow, Take Two, who the for... hell made that deal? Nobody, that's why. Okay, so the original, the original deal, I've I believe, mm-hmm. I'm sure somebody out there will correct me if I'm wrong, um, was that uh, DMA had promised to make five games mm-hmm. or deliver five SKUs, shopkeeping units, five 
yeah, yeah. you know, games um, for uh, BMG Interactive. And in the end, they delivered three. So they Ouch. did Grand Theft Auto on PC and PlayStation and Space Station Silicon Valley on the N64. So right. they were down two games. How did Space Station do on the N64? Um, it did It did really well. Did it well. did really well, despite having a, a bug in one of the final levels that meant you, you couldn't, couldn't finish the game. Yeah. yeah. And uh, at the time, it's not like you could patch the you game. You can't live patch a, a cartridge. Yeah. You know. But I also was thinking about that. Imagine... <clears throat> you put out a game and that's it done you don't need to touch it anymore now you've got to keep patching it for at least a couple oh, of yeah. years for people mm-hmm. to play it well this is it you know it's you, you mentioned Unity earlier yeah. Unity and um, the big games engine company have yeah. just acquired a company out of Dundee called Chili Connect mm-hmm. who do a live ops service and live ops is essentially all of the stuff you need to keep running your game for the next 10, 15, 20 years mm-hmm. because that's where the market is now yeah that's what people yeah. were using mm-hmm. the most I guess yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, no, there was a, it's, it's good. And it's closed mm-hmm. amount, so we don't know how much they spend on it. Indeed. But, yeah. Mm-hmm. But, uh, so, so, yeah, so uh, I was at, uh, I was at Rockstar in, in Windsor. Um, DMA became Rockstar North. And then around about six months after that, they decided that I, I was going to move back up to Scotland. Because, and this is another piece of a very, very obscure video game history, mm-hmm. they were going to merge DMA Design, mm-hmm. Rockstar Games, and a technology company based in Israel called Broadband, Pixel Broadband, I believe. Right. They were going to merge them all together and create something called Broadband Studios. So you would have the developer, the publisher, and the technology. Pixel Broadband did a... Um, had a technology platform that would allow you to build a game mm-hmm. and then publish it on many different devices. Oh, wow. So, so there was like early days, Unity or Unreal Exactly, exactly. And this was wow. when Criterion Renderware was still, you know, the the, the, the big boy on the block. Oh, I totally yeah. forgot about Renderware because mm-hmm. GTA 3 was built on Renderware, yeah. wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Wow, okay. Yeah. Exactly. So so this was, it was ahead of its time and they were going to they were going to merge the studios. They were going to, Take it to the market. They were going to IPO, um, and I was going to go up and basically be the the front guy, the, the PR guy for all of this. Um, Huge responsibility. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, never happened. Never. Oh. So the IPO failed. Whether it it was the technology wasn't up to it, whether the right. deal they had put together. Anyway, it didn't happen. I arrived on the the Monday. On the Thursday, they announced that they were closing the Dundee studio and moving everyone to Edinburgh. Oh wow! So, I ended up. I spent the next three months, um, me and the head of test and a couple of the testers. Because you don't need testers; they had just just started working on GTA Three. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't need a PR guy. You don't need testers when you're in no, the very very early days. days yeah. So we de- decommissioned the office. We were, you know, all the silicon graphics kit went in one office. All the desks went in another office. Oh, no. And it ended up just like four of us sitting at desks facing each other with a. a T1 least line, you know, to yeah. give us the really fast internet. And I had a PC each and a just T1. a stack. Yeah, just a stack of recordable discs that just got higher and higher and higher with music or games or whatever content you yeah. were, because we had nothing else to do. Um, so, That's yeah. boring. It, it was really dull. It was so really you, dull. you went from like... <clears throat> going all to these places and all like mm-hmm. the E3, all the, the big the big events in video game 
and two just sitting in a room? Well, I moved down to Edinburgh, and so they were they were working on GTA three, and I was like, okay, cool, let's let's be a writer. Yeah, that's um, good we'll go back and we'll we'll do this. And uh, but they had actually hired a proper writer. Oh no! Uh, so they had hired a guy who had actually, you know, his business card said writer, so he must have been a writer. Um, and oh, he you was, must have been he, a tad bitter about that. Honest. Yeah. He didn't. He didn't. Yeah. So I'm. I'm a very egalitarian, democratic writer. I like writing as part of a team. You know, the whole U.S. Um, mm-hmm. TV drama, the writers' room. Yeah, yeah. I would absolutely like to be part of that kind of thing. Mm. But there are some tortured artists who really. It's my vision. I. You know. I'm the the sole. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, design mm. genius. I'm the the creative vision keeper. Um, and plus, he didn't have a fucking sense of humour, so it just never it was never going to work. I was like, "Oh, here's some, here's a bit a cool bit out of game, and we could do this." And it's like we could bring back one of those characters, and we, and you know, like, no. and it was like, "No, no, 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 we have to take this all very, very seriously." Um, wow! And you know, fair enough. You know, differences turned out okay. But <laughs> GTA Three turned out like, is it not like one of the biggest game on the PlayStation Two? Yeah. So as soon as I wasn't involved anymore, it's like the whole the whole franchise took off. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, not better, but but no. So it got to the point where um, I had I had very little to do. Um, I was still on the London salary. Had a company car that nobody mm-hmm. else in Scotland did. So it was when they started trying to take all those things away, and I, I had nothing to do. I was like, yeah, screw you guys. Um, so I jumped ship and went and joined a company called uh, Digital Bridges, the mobile games pioneer, also based in Scotland. Uh, yeah. And started trying to educate the market. Um, so we were trying to tell the uh, the mobile market that video games were a, a valid form of content that everybody would really, really love. Yeah. And they were like, nah. And we were trying to tell the video games market that forget, you know, your Xboxes and your Playstations and um, your N64s and everything, or GameCube as it was at the time. You, what you really want to be doing is looking at how to put games on your Nokia 3310 yeah, or yeah, 6600. Yeah. And everybody, so both sides of the market were like, nah. go away, Brian, you're crazy. Yeah, I think it was a bad time for preaching that stuff because it was so early days. It and was. What I want to touch on is, before we go, mm-hmm. the Scottish game industry. Okay. So... <clears throat> you clearly like you were there when the Scottish game industry uh, flourished yes. because DMA design was a huge huge deal for everybody in the market it created a market there was no market in Scotland right it would like taunt a lot of tiny small companies but no nobody was really like the company so the, when DMA started it was it was the first games company the first yeah. development studio um, it was joined by another studio called Viz Mm-hmm. Which was short for Vanderkyle Interactive Systems. Yeah. Um, so it's Chris Vanderkyle who's still around about today. Runs 4G Studios. Yeah, yeah. They're doing the the console versions of Minecraft, uh, doing quite well. Yeah. Um. So, and then uh, one of the founders of DMA left and set up a company called Visual Science. Mm-hmm. Or sorry, Visual Sciences. Yeah. I remember when they rebranded and knocked the last S off. <laughs> um, and so, back in sort of the the late 90s we had six games companies six six one um, two three four five DMA six design that's it. visual science viz red lemon inner workings and um creative edge and that was it 
mm-hmm. and they were all out working on their own creative edge. It's, I, mean, it's, I would need to look at my presentation. But so, so we my had point six was companies. Like, uh-huh. That was the inception yeah. of the Scottish game industry. There yes. was nothing else. There, there mm-hmm. were companies, but there was nothing of real value for Scotland in general that could generate <coughs> enough jobs and it could be could have mm-hmm. an influence in the game industry. Which is where it started to become an industry. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That that's, that was the industry. Yeah. And um you clearly like after after you left Rockstar. You, you, you've been doubling with other companies, one of which was also Genki, which was were publishing games. But like you clearly became an advocate for the Scottish gaming industry. The first, the first influencer, you might say, in Scotland. The Scottish game influencer in Scotland. The only one. You could say influencer. You could you have could been a YouTuber at the time. Could say gobby bastard. <laughs> a gobby um, bastard. But so if what? And wait, wait. Oh, right. Wait, and you featured on one of Consulvania episodes as well, <laughs> which I was quite surprised. I paid for that bloody thing. <laughs> um, no, literally, I did. Uh, so okay, yeah. Um, the way it worked was everything kind of bubbled along early two thousands. It got to round about two thousand and four ish, and we started to get new graduates coming out of Aberty, mm-hmm. the world's first um, game development um, degree. Um, people were leaving, you know, some of the some of the bigger companies, setting up on their own, mm-hmm. mostly round and about Dundee, but out into other um, cities as well. And so for the first time, we really started to get to the point where not everybody knew everybody else. Not everybody had to work together at some point. Yeah. Not everybody had hung out in the same pubs, which was the point in the earlier days. Um, so I started um, ScottishGames.biz. In fact, no, before then, I started uh, a Yahoo group and called it the Scottish Games Network. I don't think I heard the word Yahoo and group in the same sentence for Oh, that's because, yeah, and there's a reason for that. Um, but it was just, it was a way to sort of help give people a focal point and mm-hmm. let them meet each other and say, hey, we're such and such and we're yeah. doing this. Um that was okay for about a year, and then I turned it into a, a WordPress website or blogger web. Turned it into well, a website yes. anyway. ScottishGames.biz ran it for a couple of years and started to sort of look at um, who was doing what and sort of throwing up news stories and just mm. trying to create a focal point because there was starting to be some interest in the games industry. Mm. Um, then. Uh, Facebook had started to make a splash. It started to change things. And there was a, a new platform called Ning, N-I-N-G, which let you build your own social network. Yeah, yeah. You know? um, so I turned it into a Ning ring and <laughs> ran that for a year. I was like, hey, we're all citizen journalists, but yeah. everyone can have their own group. So every company can create their own profile. Every um, graduate can start their own... An know, early day Slack. Basically. Um, and just nobody used it. No. Um, so I, after after 18 months of that, I went, actually, screw you guys. I'm taking back control. So I turned it into the Scottish Games Network that we we have today. It has evolved and changed over time. But mm-hmm. So really just trying to create a platform for the industry. Um, and I didn't give anybody a choice. If you're working in games or involved mm-hmm. in games in Scotland, you're a member. Sorry, you don't get to be. Yeah, you, know, you don't get to. You, get you don't to get to be peak. on the outside, um, right. because we've got two UK-wide games industry bodies, uh, Yuki and Tiger. 
now they're both based down south. They don't have any kind of boots on the ground in Scotland. We've got a completely different infrastructure up here. We've got Scottish Enterprise, Creative Scotland, as we do now, Scottish Arts Council, Scottish Screen, Business as it Gateway. was back then, Business Gateway. It's a completely different route into market and the support yeah. that's available is completely different. So I, I would say it's fragmented. Lots of support, but it's fragmented. You completely. have to know about it. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, completely. you wouldn't get it. How, where are we now? Because like, okay, I'm going to give a little, a little open and close bracket. I... I collaborated with Lucky Frame. Mm-hmm. Jan Sesnek uh-huh. is one of the nicest guys. He's been on the podcast. one of the nicest totally guys I've ever met. Awesome. Incredible vision. Mm-hmm. And, and and Jonathan and... Oh, I don't remember the other guy working in the company. I'm trying to remember his name. Oh, she was a nice dude as yeah. well. Anyway, they were, they were a nice group of people just making games. And they had a, mm-hmm. a level of success. I did the trailer mm-hmm. for Gentleman. I did the trailer yeah. for Wave Trip. And um, so I had my moments where I was mm-hmm. sort of like getting into yeah. the Scottish video game industry, doing animation and trailers for people. I I, I worked with Ed Key, he, he did the uh, Proteus, so mm-hmm. I did a trailer for him, and um, and then they they had to close down. Yeah, and they had a level of success. I yeah, mean, Wave did. Trip was a successful mm-hmm. iOS game. Gentleman did all right, and Pugs Love Beats. Pugs Love Beats, Beats, which was the, their first like big game mm-hmm. practically, and. Um, they just didn't make it. And I was, that's the time, mm-hmm. right, when I realized that business wasn't good enough mm-hmm. for a company. And there were three people. They had yeah. no overhead. They worked in a tiny studio and out of the blue, um, which is a place where you can rent studios, yeah, basically. Yeah. And they, I was so surprised because I mm-hmm. have seen, I've known Jan very well as a friend. So I've seen the company sort of like growing to a point and then sort of like, fizzling out and they yeah. were they were distracted by making games because they had to survive so they were mm-hmm. working with like, agencies doing you know interactive sort of apps and things um, and that's when I realized it was a problem in the Scottish mm-hmm. game industry I can't believe that a company that is even mildly successful can't survive because mm-hmm. there's not enough money in the industry so th- there's very clearly money in the industry that's what it's just now Uneasily distributed, unevenly distributed, um, uneasily distributed actually might work better. Mm. Uh, okay, so the games industry has changed. Yes, the games industry industry is constantly changing. Mm-hmm. It's being forced to change by not just the tools and technologies and the platforms, but the routes to market, the business models, and the the fact that there is so much more content out there. You know, yes. the challenge for a game developer these days is not making the game. It's arguably. surviving afterwards. Yeah. Right. When I started, you needed to build your own engine. You needed a relationship mm-hmm. with the Sony's, the Microsoft's, the Nintendo's, mm-hmm. or you did it on the PC, and then you still needed a publisher because it was boxed copies that went to shops. Yeah. So it was a much more, a much smaller market, and it was a market where you needed a large company. You needed a lot of funding up front, a big team to yeah. go and make a game. All of that's changed. All of that's shifted. And um, Lucky Frame, for me, exemplified what games companies could be but the the thing was they weren't a games company they were artists they were creators they were yes right the the pugs love beats i would argue is not a game and shouldn't be thought of it mm-hmm. as a game it's a sequencer where you dress up adorable little pugs in outfits yeah. and send them to go and collect heart-shaped beats they also made bad hotel which won the bafta bad hotel yeah they and they were one of the most creative and one of the most original thinking companies and yeah out couldn't there. survive 
and you know I worked at Denki for a year and a half mm-hmm. and who were working on um, two different games which were going to be absolutely astonishing they were working on Quarrel and another game called Power Gear Assembly um, Quarrel did come out eventually mm-hmm. so it's Risk meets Scrabble it's still an, a phenomenal phenomenal game can't get it anymore because the publisher's sitting on it won't do anything with it and Power Gear Assembly never reached never, never saw the light of day which was you were going to be actually building um, a, a military machines you know mm-hmm. helicopters and tanks and all of this yeah. but in a really fun kind of way so it was almost like a series of mini games really nice really really nice stuff um but this is the issue. So the industry moves and the way in which you connect with your player, the way that you monetize the player changes with it. Mm. And if you are a developer and you are reliant on getting money from a publisher to make something, you're wholly reliant on that publisher to keep your doors open. Yeah. And this is why we lost so many of the original six companies. You know, they pretty much the majority of them were doing work for a big company who then went, nah, or that company went down the tubes yeah. or that company was acquired. And that was it. So it rippled all the way down the chain and killed them. Um, the reality today, where we're at right now, is that content isn't scarce. No. Right? You, you're not competing. Like once upon a time, you make, you put in GTA, you're competing against Tomb Raider, you're competing against Wipeout. Not even because those were different type mm-hmm. of games, a different type of gamers, so different type of games. But now you're like you're competing with YouTube, you're competing mm-hmm. with Netflix yeah. because this the media the media has been consumed today is different. Exactly. The way I, I like to put it is, we as mm-hmm. the games industry are in a war for attention, yeah. and we're competing directly with Amazon Prime and Netflix and YouTube and Spotify. Going out for a walk in the fresh air, going to the pub with your mates, mm-hmm. reading a good book. People only have so much time in their day and we only now have the, we are only now interested in excellence. You're Whereas, also like skewed because you don't have access to the data that these companies have access to. Netflix knows exactly what to produce to, en- to engage you mm-hmm. and your family. The same as Amazon. Amazon knows exactly what to produce, but the gaming industry doesn't know. The games industry can and should. So you, you, we mentioned Unity, the other company, mm-hmm that uh, Unity acquired here in Edinburgh was called Delta DNA, formerly known as Games Analytics. And so they actually have that kind of insight, that kind of input. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm running an event in Dundee in March as part of the Data Fest called Designing with Data, the Future of Mm -hmm. Games, looking at the ways in which games companies have to understand their data. Because otherwise, how the hell do you produce and publish a game in a world where there are what? 1.7 1.7 million apps on the App Store. I can't even remember how many games there are on Steam. And what you're doing is going to pour 100% of your time and attention and resources and love into making something and then at the end do the equivalent of toss it over your shoulder and say, well, I hope that goes all Angry Birds. Even Angry Birds 2 didn't go all Angry Birds. You know, there is far too much material and content and competing apps and competing you know, demands on your attention for anybody to really just go, oh, I'm going to look at the app store each and every single day and look for the new games that are coming out. Mm. They, and this is compounded by the fact that we are now producing more games graduates than we ever have. But these games graduates are wanting to come out and make games. 
Now, making the game is step one these days. Then you've got to market the game. You've got to figure out how you're making money out of the game. Oh, I suppose it'll just have to be free to play because everything is and we'll all die lonely and alone in a bus stop. Mm. It's like, no, why aren't you looking at how you're making money out there? Is it downloadable content? Are you providing customization? How about incentivized adverts? Did you know that incentivized adverts is actually, you know, what the primary revenue generating um Opportunity on the App Store these days. Have you looked at Apple Arcade? If not, why not? But we're not producing the people who are asking these questions because it means they've got to stop making a game and go and figure out payroll or or potentially go and actually get enthusiastic about their game. So that's what it is. Like you, you're a YouTuber. You're uh, you're making a game. You are your own PR company. You have to. Yeah. Like. We're at this point, right? When you want to start making a game, the first thing mm-hmm. they say to do is make your first game, get used to the thing, and then give it away. Yeah. Make your second game, mm-hmm. get used to the tools, give it away. Then you do your idea. Mm-hmm. Your the big idea you have in your mind is your third all game. All of these, your all game. of these graduates, all of the sorry, all of these students studying. We've got four universities producing um, game development production graduates, yeah. um, and we've got every college in Scotland now doing the same with HNCs and HNDs. Um, so there's more people studying games, mm. but where are they going? You know, they're not publishing them. They're not getting that, you know, real world experience. Are they getting the education though? They're getting the tools and the technologies. Is, yeah, but, is but nobody's that, teaching us is that enough? Business, yeah. So are we, are we missing out on the research and academic driven side of things? Mm-hmm. Yes, I think we are. I don't, I'm not seeing an awful lot of research coming out. Um, are we producing vocational um, graduates who are perfectly good employees but have very little or no entrepreneurial skills or mm. business sense mm. so they're not coming out and and setting up a, a business and i would what? argue yeah, sorry. sorry last point um i would argue that most of the companies that we see springing up in scotland aren't actually companies at all they're not businesses right if you start a tech business if you start an animation business if you start a business you are there to produce a product, provide a service, or make something faster, easier, cheaper, solve a pain point. Games companies don't necessarily have to do that. You can be, hey, guys, we're a games company. Excellent. And because we have this this mindset in Scotland now, which is games, oh, that's creative industries. That's, that's you know, the games industry is huge. Welcome aboard, guys. Here's the high growth pipeline. Um, and they're not a business. They've got an idea for a game, but... I can more or less guarantee you that they have no business model for it. That if they've thought about the platform at all, it's like, oh, we'll stick it out on Steam. Why? Well, we've all got PCs. Really? You've put that much thought into it? What game are you going to do? Um, we're going to do this this um, little real-time strategy for a tower defence game, that Andrew's idea. Why? Well, it's his turn. Really? How wonderfully democratic. What if Andrew's a dick? You know? So we're producing content that goes nowhere. We're putting it out into a market that doesn't care, that's not getting the support or the recognition. I have sat in rooms with people from the games industry and said, name me five games that came out of Scotland last year. No idea. Yeah. No idea. And, I wouldn't know. And, and I I've, care about games. And yeah. I've sat in rooms with MDs from companies that have published more than five games in a mm. year. So we're, we're at a point where the industry has contracted. The recent research that came out from Yuki, the big UK-wide um, industry body, uh, highlighted, um, or sorry, identified 115 games companies. Was it not 2016, s- though? 
Yep, yeah. 115 games companies in Scotland making it the fourth largest cluster in the whole of the UK. But that's based on data from 2016. By my own research, which involved emailing people, phoning people and visiting websites, I think in 2020 we now have roughly 40 studios. Mm. So that's a 65% reduction. We don't have a startup scene for game developers in Scotland. We don't have the same kind of community mm. as we do within the wider tech startup scene. So I've been involved in the sort of the broader technology market, digital mm. technology market in Scotland for the last several years. Um, the startup scene in particular, right? And it's active, it's thriving, it's getting there. There are some really, huge, really interesting huge, companies. Huge business, yeah. Huge, huge, a lot of money. Vanishingly small number of games developers, yeah. games companies, because they're not solving a problem. They're not providing a service. Games companies define themselves by what they will not do. Okay? All of the big money from the public sector, from the big contracts, all of that, are being soaked up by digital design studios. So yeah. digital design studios will go, yes, we can. It's like, we're looking for somebody who can do VR. We can do VR. Find somebody who does VR. Well, that's you know? the, the, the... Whereas <laughs> games companies... The servicing industry as a whole. Yeah, but, but we're not seeing... The, the startups appear. So we don't have the startup scene around games. Um, the games industry does talk to itself, but it's so insular that it mm. it's the games industry talking to the games industry about the games industry. If you go to any of the games events, so GDC, uh, the Game Developer Conference out in San yep. Francisco, um, or Develop down in Brighton, it's the industry talking to the industry, and it's about the stuff that the industry has found out. Very, very rarely do you get anybody from the outside going, guys, you're not going to believe what's happening out there. You know, you'll have somebody coming and talking about VR and everyone goes mm. away and goes, oh, VR's the next big thing, or, or AR. But we're not looking at not just the, the rest of the tech sector, we're not looking at the creative industries. And what it means is that all of the, the knowledge that could come in to help establish more startups, you know, gain that business knowledge, um, build successful companies, isn't coming in. And then all of the interesting things happening within the game sector in terms of the use of data, um, how you monetize customers you know, and prove their lifetime value, predict what it is they like, don't like, you know, all of the pioneering work that the game sector's done isn't getting out. So it's remaining this, this insular little bubble where we're not benefiting from the overall rise in the digital technology scene. Um, and we're not feeding back out into the rest of the creative industries and helping the rest of the creative industries become more digital because we, don't, we as the games industry do not see ourselves as part of the creative industries or as part of the tech scene. And that is painfully true. I mean, being on, you know, uh, creative Edinburgh steering group and being a big Creative Edinburgh advocate and being involved with Creative Edinburgh mm -hmm. for years, I've seen that firsthand. There's rarely anyone mm -hmm. from the tech industry that comes to the event, let alone the video game industry. I met one person yeah. in one, two, three, four, five, five years, six mm -hmm. years, one person. And I'm very active in the community. Yeah. So um, it, is to ch it has to change. This has to change. Otherwise, it's always going to be one or two big actors, and mm -hmm. that's it. And there's no then the, the, the you know all the same games come down. Exactly, exactly. It's when you look at the the companies that exist. Denki technically still exists. They've been going since um, 
I think around about 2002. So they're yeah. the oldest games company yeah. in, in the country. Um, and they're not, I think it's only a couple of people left mm-hmm. there uh, these days. But I go to a lot of the startup breakfasts. I go to a lot of the Creative Edinburgh stuff. Um, I'm currently mentoring a, mm-hmm. a young game designer through Creative Edinburgh. Yeah. Um, who's coming at it from a completely different angle, mm-hmm. you know, which is as, as a business and as it's looking at family and educational side of things. There's a real purpose for her being there, you know, doing what yeah. she's doing. Um, and it's got a, a much longer term, you know, potential, yeah. or it's got much longer term potential. But I'm filling her in on, um, you know, the Scottish Edge competition, uh, the RBS Accelerator, um, you know, the UK Games Fund. There are so many organisations that can help, like Codebase, TechCube, you know, mm-hmm. all of things. But there's there's business help there as well. But again, um, she's gone out and she's spoken to the game sector and kind of has not had any of this being fed yeah. back. So all of Scotland's successes in the video game sector are kind of fading into the distance, right? Rockstar aside, 4G Studios aside, you know, Minecraft's doing phenomenally well. They've done some really clever things. We've got a few studios that are doing really nice work. No Code in Glasgow have won multiple awards for their mm-hmm. their last few games. Um, Tag Games have just moved into bigger offices. Outplay are doing fantastically well. But then Outplay, like many others, mm-hmm. they make games, but also have to work with clients and do offer services but, but, to survive. But that's, they, that's what but needs that's, to be that's, now these years. But that's this their time, business yeah. is they do work for hire. They're, they're yeah. building games based on licenses. Um, they've got their own intellectual property based on mm-hmm. really successful games. I mean, match three games. Um, so they're, but they've discovered a way of capturing people when they bounce out of um, Candy Crush or Bubble Witch Saga or whatever yeah. it happens to be. People get bored enough to want a twist on that. Outplay are there. Their production values are really high. They've got some really nice games, oh, very yeah, highly yeah, polished. Yeah, yeah. But it's a business model and it's working for them. But Absolutely. this is the point. That is a business. Yeah. Like they're making money and they're successful. Tag does what they work do. for hire. You know, Tag's yeah. entire business is based around building games based on other people's IP, right? Mm. Which is a tried and tested way of doing it. And they're yeah. doing it fantastically well. So it's not that the entire industry is dead. Thank you. Good night. It's like. No, 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 left no. is sweeping up it's the radioactive evolved. dust. It's evolved in different ways. But we're not getting the next generation coming through. I'm not seeing the startups. I'm not finding, you know, the really quirky, edgy stuff like Lucky Framer producing. That's what, the, bang on. That's what exactly what I mean. Like Lucky Frame, they were doing new stuff mm-hmm. and they were evolving yeah. and they were creating more interesting games. And then that's it. Mm-hmm couldn't, couldn't yeah. manage to survive where was the support for them I mean I know they, they, they used to get money all the, they, <coughs> they used to get funding mm-hmm. to survive and the moment the moment they didn't get funding that was it came over yeah yeah I, and this is this is the harsh reality you know yeah. it's the, the the market is is big enough to generate a huge amount of revenue for successful games but making those successful games it has changed entirely it's not the actual creation process the mm-hmm. development process that's necessarily the hard bit these days it's now the okay we've made that yeah now what now you contact every single youtuber out there just give them whatever money they want they'll play your game and there you have it but see <laughs> I, and again this is this is the thing eric you you've then missed the, the six months or 12 months or however long it's taken you to make that game mm-hmm. 
you've missed that whole opportunity. You know, you've yeah. got companies out there. I, I used to do PR for games companies in Scotland. 2002, yeah. I set up my own business, my own agency doing this. Um, and in the sort of 2010s, the, the, the market is no longer there because, you know, I was sitting down in front of companies who are going, right, okay, here's our game, right? It launches next week. What can you yeah. do? And you're like, well, you're I late. can get a time machine and go back to a month and start talking about it then because it's yeah. the only way people are going to give a damn. Yeah. You know, they, they, yeah, yeah, they need to hear it once, twice, five, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 times. Yeah. yeah. And on that. But, but people look at it. Do you remember Flappy Bird? Oh, of course. So Flappy Birds, you know, came out, did nothing, did nothing. PewDiePie reviewed it. That's it. Boom. And then people were selling their phones for t- hundreds of th- or thousands of pounds because it had Flappy Birds. They Bird were on. buying phones off of eBay because yeah. Flappy Bird was mm-hmm. on it. It's crazy. Yeah, after after the developer withdrew it from the App Store. That was a crazy good marketing campaign. But <laughs> it, it was entirely inadvertent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this is this is the point. It's like the market has changed so much, right? Mm. You can hit your players directly. You can interact with your players directly. You don't need the publisher. You don't need to be able to follow the old models. Yeah, yeah. But you need to be able to get excited about your game and you need to be able to get out there and actually figure out who, at some point, if you don't want to charge your players directly, then use incentivize and advertising. You know, get your game sponsored. But the problem we've got right now is that everybody is... is um, denying any responsibility whose mm-hmm. job is it to decide what the business model is right on that one brian eric tell people where they can find you uh so i'm cutting oh right i see what you mean in uh, a cave somewhere <laughs> uh you can find me online i run the scottish games network which is scottishgames.net if you're looking online um or you can follow me on twitter which is at flackboy or indeed at scottish games well thank you very much for listening um speak to you soon bye cheers eric see you <laughs>